0: Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show, send Ray, myself and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll do our best to answer them live and then certainly get back to you after the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. In 2010, he was CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, Regular Contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and nowadays on Fox Business and CNBC and all the other uh, news uh, outlets covering technology. In my humble opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at R-W-A-N-G-0. Welcome Ray Wong to Disrupt TV.
1: Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my co-host Bala Afshar, as you know, the chief digital evangelist of Salesforce, but more importantly, one of the top CMO, top CIO followers, and of course, a top follower on Twitter overall. So published author himself, and of course, keynote speaker. Uh, But we're not here to talk about ourselves. We're here to really talk about what's new, what's happening, what's hot out there. Who's our first guest, Bala?
0: Speaking of a brilliant author, keynote speaker, and CEO, it's our privilege to invite Erica Dewan, uh, who's the world's leading authority on connectional intelligence. And she's also the founder of Potential. Uh, through speaking, training, consulting, Erica teaches business leaders innovative strategies that increase value for their clients, deliver results, and ensure competitiveness. Erica is the co-author of the best-selling book, Get Big Things Done the power of connectional intelligence. Erica was named by Thinkers 50 as the Oprah of management ideas (laughs) and featured as one of the emerging management thinkers most likely to shape the future of business. Erica hosts an award-winning podcast, Masters of Leadership. Erica also writes for Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Fast Company, and Huffington Post. You can follow Erica. You must follow Erica on Twitter at edh. A-W-A-N. Welcome, Erica, to Disrupt TV.
2: Thank you so much, Vala and Ray. It's great to be here.
0: I love it. The Oprah of management ideas. What a great compliment.
2: It's (laughs) probably the best compliment I'll ever have in my life.
1: (laughs) No, no. There's a lot more in front of you. (laughs) We'll give you that. So, hey, awesome book. Uh, Caught it on Audible. Um, I always always wish, like, the author would do the audibles themselves. But, hey, whatever. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, there's a whole piece that you're talking about here, and, and this is really about this connected role, um, and the thing is, you're telling the part that wasn't being told, uh, and, and this is the part that's really helpful in terms of building great careers, and actually creating that work-life balance. Let's start there as the jumping off point, uh, because I think it's really important for people to get that context, but also understand how you're getting them, where you're coming from.
2: Absolutely, so we live in a world of constant meetings and emails, overwhelming cross-team dysfunction, duplication, and delays, we are not just connected, we are over-connected. And a lot of the ways that we've measured relationships in the digital world has been through quantity of connections, not quality. And my work over the last 10 years has really been focused on shifting that notion. The fact is that having a lot of networks and connections doesn't necessarily lead to creating change, to getting big things done. The key is the skill of how you use your relationships and connections intelligently. And so my work and my mission is really to transform this world of let's connect more and let's collaborate more to how do we really drive productive engagement, tap intelligence around us that's usually at our fingertips now. It's not about networking more, but in ways that are smart, intelligent, and valuable.
0: That's awesome. Do you have a copy of your book? I'm sorry, I don't have I it. I do. I
2: Can do. You... I'm going to bring it up at the end. Yeah, it's not... yeah,
0: yeah. Can you... it would be great to show our audience. Um, yeah, you know, I was watching uh, a documentary about Ted Williams. I'm Boston-based, and he's one of the yeah. greatest hitters of all time. And throughout the, uh, the documentary, uh, Ted himself emphasized the importance of patience yes. at, the, at the plate.
1: Yeah. And
0: really, you know, playing long ball right. uh, in terms of establishing... Uh, in, in his case, a, a meaningful science of hitting a baseball, which is supposedly the hardest thing you can do in sports. Yeah. You know, so you, how does this 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 connectional intelligence and n- recognizing, being mindful that we're in this hyperconnected, knowledge-sharing world, and it's important to maintain good signal-to-noise ratio. How, what does that teach you in terms of establishing a successful career, and more importantly, a more fulfilling life?
2: Yeah. So in many ways we have become addicted to speed because our social networking tools have allowed us to work faster, to reach more people, to get things done in in just bigger ways at an increased level of speed. But in the reality is that still the, the ability to not only have patience, but to be adaptable and to be consistent year over year is what makes or breaks teams, leaders that get big things done and those who don't. And so the reason why connectional intelligence matters, and by the way, the idea isn't new. So the great leaders of our time from Da Vinci to you know uh, Marie Curie had a high level of connectional intelligence, bringing disparate silos together, unique ideas together, but the scale depth and breadth is different. And so for all of you wanting to use your connectional intelligence, what I would actually encourage you to think about is the fact that less haste equals more speed. So if you want to build smart relationships, work effectively, you have to build the skill of patient and careful relationship building. Uh, We're used to responding immediately, not holding our horses, sometimes sending passive aggressive or uh, thoughts, and that is not working in our new world of work. And so creating that sense of patience that consistency, because it's both patience, but it's also being consistent over a long period of time is what makes or breaks those that are connectionally intelligent versus not.
1: You know, and, and what's really interesting about what you're talking about here is, is these are skills like the way people look at emotional intelligence in the past um, that are just starting to come to light, right? And you've managed to put a framework around it. You spend a lot of time researching people. So who are some of those people that you? Really- yeah. I just epitomize contextual intelligence and and really make you think about, hey, this is a characteristic, something that people get a grasp in terms of those, what what those characteristics are.
2: Yeah, so I have so many examples in my book and in my work and and I want to share and highlight a few of them. What I'm also really excited about is most of these people aren't people that had a lot of money or even a lot of contacts Uh, at the beginning. They had a purpose and an intention. Uh, One of my favorite examples is a woman named Jeannie Pieper, and Jeannie Pieper grew up with a very rare disease called FOB. In the entire 20th century, there were only two research papers on this rare disease. She spent 20 years scouring from doctor to doctor, trying to diagnose it. Luckily, met one doctor who had met about 18 patients in his lifetime that had this disease. She didn't just get treated. She decided to ask herself, how could I connect this network? What could be possible if other rare disease patients like me were actually in touch. She started off with writing handwritten letters, then creating the email newsletter, then creating the Facebook group. This group grew from patients to families and friends of those patients. Soon enough, doctors, medical researchers, university professionals joined this Facebook community to get research from the first ever connected network of patients with this rare disease, they began to identify symptoms. Um, They began to work together to fundraise and create the first ever association for this rare disease. Today, they they funded the first ever medical research for this rare disease, just because Jeannie was able to do a few things. First, she was not only curious, she didn't just ask great questions, which we all talk about. She figured out a way to design a way for other people to engage and want to connect with her. It was really an emotional support group first. Then what she did is she asked what other silos or groups might wanna contribute to this, um, not just patients and families. And so that's when she brought in medical professionals, scientists, researchers, That's when this new added intelligence and benefit was able to be created. And she didn't stop there. She said, how do we sustain this? So she created the association. She created foundational work at universities. Another great example I want to share, which is also sort of um, completely different, is um, a story about a community called the Granny Cloud. Have you heard of the Granny Cloud, Ray, or Mm Ball Granny Cloud is a community of thousands of grandmothers around the world that come together on video Skype and mentor children around the world uh, in developing countries on their coursework. So this began through one professor who put computer Wi-Fi enabled kiosks in slum villages across India to see what would happen if children had access to the internet without teachers present. The kids went online, they were practicing coursework, learning English, And as this group began to get international media attention, and a group of grandmothers in England asked the professor, how can we help? The instant response would have been, give us more money. Help us buy more kiosks. But they said, no, how can we engage? And they came up with the idea of the granny cloud. And you think the story stops there, but it doesn't. In fact, research is now being done to show that the video interaction that these grandmothers are having is increasing their cognitive ability as they decline in age. So it's now being considered as a model of engagement for senior centers, retirement centers, and, and really reimagining how do we engage underutilized networks across the world, retired workers, senior citizens, um, and how do we bridge connection in a way that's truly intelligent today?
0: That's amazing, that's amazing. That's awesome. every, every, th- every, uh, every second, uh, three people in India connect to the internet for the first time, and uh, we'll have a billion plus uh, yeah. connections, unique connections just from India uh, by 2030, which is, which is stunning. Yes. Um, you had an awesome TED Talk, really a heartfelt <laughs> TED Talk, where you said, and it was the first time you shared the story on stage or or anywhere. Yeah. Um, and you're like, hey, listen, I'm the world-renowned expert on connections, and yet I didn't feel connected to my mom. Yeah. And uh, you ended up for her 60th birthday, sending her a painting set. Yeah. And which be, and and you did that because when you were young, the fondest memories you had were you and her painting. Yeah. And She started painting and the first painting was an eye and maybe signaling, are you seeing me? I can see you. And then the second painting was you and her. It was super heartwarming, exceptional TED talk, highly recommended. But I wonder when I listen to you, are are these stories the reasons why you wrote your book? I mean, why why did you write your book? Because it was really a personal story, but it taught all of us that, uh, you know, again, it goes back to uh, uh, Coach Wooden said, go fast, but don't hurry. Really taking the time to find ways to uniquely, meaningfully connect with people, including people that have been closest to you in your life, where you may have over time drifted away. So can you tell us why you wrote your book?
2: Yeah, so growing up as an Indian immigrant kid in the U.S., I wanted to check off all the boxes of success. So I went and got three Ivy League degrees. I worked on Wall Street at Lehman Brothers and, you know, there I was working on Wall Street at Lehman Brothers in the height of 2008 and the recession hits. And my whole version of what success was dwindled down. Um, I really had to rethink, you know, in today's world, what really allows us to achieve meaning, success, success. Um, But also what I saw very clearly was that it's not what teams do, it's how teams work that leads to greatness or destruction. I mean, I not only was working at Lehman Brothers, I saw how poor leadership, poor collaboration, a poor ability to create and manage connections, not only led to one company going down, but it really started the Great Recession. And so that's what inspired me um, to spend a series of years at Harvard doing research on this topic, I think another piece is I saw this whole generational discussion around what millennials want, and I really battled that. I'm a bit of a geriatric millennial, and what I saw was that um, it's not about what millennials want, it's about how do we work in the modern age that really drives the processes, products, innovations that matter. And what I saw was that to really catapult, we, we need the skill to work across silos, to intelligently use, leverage relationships, to work across networks, in smarter ways not just more ways so that's what inspired the book and my learning journey on that has also been that we can't just throw out best practices we have to be tailored and think about what will really create connections in the in the work we're doing and the, with the people we're with and that could be digital and social media oriented or it could just be as simple as getting your group together going on a walk and doing something fun and different that makes you laugh.
1: Wow. Now, you go deeper in the book, and you talk about the five Cs of connectional intelligence. I think there were curiosity, combination, courage, combustion, and community. Uh, Give us some examples of, like, how that works and comes together.
2: Yeah, so um, a great example of the five Cs in action is a a story from Colgate-Palmolive. A few years ago, there was a team at Colgate that had developed a new fluoride that they were meshing in their toothpaste. But there was a mechanical flow problem. The fluoride was getting stuck in the equipment. It wasn't meshing well. All the best chemists internally were trying to figure out why. No one could. And they really had to ask, how do we solve this problem? We haven't been able to solve it internally. So you know one team member I had the curiosity to say not just, you know, we can't solve this, but who else could help us solve this problem? And how could we design a way to engage or broaden our perspective? Because this isn't working. And so um, they ended up realizing that there's a community, another element, called InnoCentive, which is a crowdsourcing community where scientists come together to help large companies they end up sharing the challenge on that website. Within a few days, a physicist named Ed Melkrick looked at the problem and, and he says, This isn't a chemistry problem. It's a physics problem. It's about charged particles. You charge the fluoride one way, the toothpaste the other, and you know, instantly the problem was solved. Again, combining what people labeled as a chemistry problem with a physics problem combination. Um, and you know, from that experience, Colgate you know, achieved combustion. They were able to solve the problem much more effectively, but they learned a few things. The first thing they learned is that they didn't even dare to ask the physicists at their own company, because they had labeled it as a chemistry problem. But they had the talent there, they just couldn't see it. The second thing they realized is that that physicist that solved the problem would have never been hired by Colgate. He didn't have the traditional resume, and so they had to have a different level of courage in today's construct, too. So I've talked about all of the five C's in that just quick story, but the real lesson is that the answer now is not having all the knowledge. It's about designing a way to engage others to gain that knowledge, to solve problems um, that go far beyond our own traditional silos.
0: Right, right. Yeah, you had mentioned in your book it's the ability to to combine knowledge, ambition, and human capital. Also, um, you differentiated uh difference between uh, knowledge and wisdom. Yes. So if I'm a CEO of a startup or, 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 or any size company for that matter, and I come to you and say, Erica, please help me understand how I can take advantage of the, the collective genius of my company, my, my stakeholders, my customers, employees, partners, communities, and for me to be able to, Collect wisdom, not just knowledge how, how, how can somebody go on that path of being able to recognize and and and, uh, w- and differentiate between wisdom and knowledge?
2: yeah, so we all know that knowledge and and it's you know tied to i q it's sort of the acquiring of data of assets of insights we we know um, what knowledge is but uh, the way I describe not only the importance of knowledge but wisdom is. Um, Clayton Christensen has a phrase that he says, um, which is actively seek passive data. So it's, you know, wisdom is the passive data around you. It's the, um, it's the cues and signals that people don't say, but what they mean. It's how they um, engage with one another in a room together, how in a digital workplace, how conference calls are designed to create a safe space for people to speak up versus not. How, um, actually, I just did some great research on the number of BCCs in a company culture actually signals a lot of data and passive data around trust or fear in a culture. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you want to not only collect knowledge, what people give you, but you want to gain wisdom around your surroundings, look for where that passive data, that those cues and signals may be that are not verbal, um, but really make a huge difference on how people interpret, manage, and relate to one another. Great advice, super valuable.
1: Very, very important. So so here's a question we get a lot, and it's one coming as well uh, from someone on Twitter. How is connected intelligence tied back to awareness and being awoke?
2: So great question. You know, I would say that, and I imagine it's a bit of awareness, self-awareness and group awareness. I put it in both of those categories. Yep. I would say awareness is really an element of emotional intelligence, it's really a key, you know, aware, self-awareness and empathy is really the combination of what EQ is. And so we all know what IQ is. We all know what EQ is and awareness is an element of that. But in today's, um, in today's modern overconnected era, we can't just rely on IQ and EQ because most of the time, we're not in a room with one another. We're working virtually, we're working across disparate networks. So we really need to build the skill of connectional intelligence to create greater value out of our connections. But I would say that um, they are separate things and that we need both because what we also see is um, we can use we can engage a lot of connections, but not truly be aware sometimes of what's actually going on. On the other hand, other times we can use our connections in a way that makes us much more aware. So we can get inside views from our customers immediately. We can see adverse reactions to a CEO's response to something immediately. So there is sort of a different level of group awareness we can achieve with connectional intelligence. But I would argue that we still need eq when it comes to self-awareness
0: yeah absolutely i had jack ma at davos also brought up lq love quotient and
2: love quotient yes. yeah
0: he said if you love what you do and you love the people you serve in addition to eq and iq that's his formula for success and yeah. i thought that was pretty cool pretty cool, <laughs> pretty cool.
2: And, and again um, we all know we could use more love in the world. Certainly.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. But,
2: but connectional intelligence can help us do that because it can make us closer—from the granny to the child, to the patient, to the doctor, to the corporate worker, new employee, to the CEO.
0: For sure, Erica, please show us your book. You
2: wanna... Oh, my book! It's coming. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we gotta get the book. It's a. Uh yeah i know people have been reading this it's one of it's definitely one of the must reads uh definitely on thinker's 50 top list and oh, doesn't,
2: awesome. doesn't it there Looks we like go. mcdonald's ad oh, it. I love so, that.
1: <laughs> hey it gets your attention that's what counts I, in the book cover so, absolutely
2: i'm so great grateful to be on the show and cheers to you ray and Vala, for creating connectional intelligence on disrupt tv
1: thank you so much hey thank you very much you we
3: come
2: are back with erica the one keynote speaker <laughs> of collaboration
1: again. Yes. CEO of Contential. More potentially, you can follow her at E-D-H-A-W-A-N and get her book on Amazon or anywhere else where books are sold. So, hey, thanks a lot for being
0: on the show. Thank you, Erica. Thank you. Terrific. This is why we love Fridays, Ray. We get to spend time with just extraordinary people. And I love the, the, the advice of, you know, don't chase vanity metrics. Don't chase size and quantity. Uh, you know, aim for quality. And speaking of quality, we have one of the Uh, most amazing CMOs uh, on our show. We have Megan Eisenberg. She's the chief marketing officer at Trip Actions. Trip Actions is a technology-enabled corporate travel management platform that combines data science, user-friendly design, and world-class service to bring businesses and their employees the most rewarding travel experience possible. Ray, you and I need Trip Actions. You do. (laughs) (laughs) Megan has uh, spent over 20 years in high-tech and most recently, As the CMO of TripActions, prior to TripActions, Megan was the CMO of MongoDB and on the boards of G2 Crowd and Reactful. Megan was named as one of the top 50 most retweeted thought leaders by mid-sized marketeers, according to Adweek. She was also named the most influential MarTech leader and one of the top 25 B2B marketing influencers, according to InsideView. Uh, She advises over a dozen companies on digital marketing and overall business transformational Strategies. A great follow on Twitter at M-E-I-S-E-N-B-E-R-G M Eisenberg. Welcome, Megan, to the Dis- uh, Disrupt TV.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me today.
0: Andy, Supernova Awards winner too. I know oh, I should you know, I'm <laughs> great. You only have a show. If I listed all of Megan's awards, I'd be talking for ten minutes. So
1: <laughs> no, we're done. We're done. We can't, we can't do all that. You you are one of the top, I'd say probably top 10, top 20 B2B CMOs, um, and you're a serial startup CMO um, at all stages. So let's start by the question, which is really, and a lot of people have been asking, like, how did you end up in marketing and what gets you excited in this calling?
4: Sure, you know, I actually started out as an IT engineer at Cisco Systems, Uh, went back to business school and realized it was a great time to pivot and that I enjoyed a lot of the marketing and strategy classes I was taking, I could come out and market uh, for tech companies and understand the product, understand the buyer. So that was what got me into marketing. As far as startups, there's nothing more fun than that build process where you bring in the people and the process technology and you really figure out what it takes to scale a company. And that was certainly a draw to, to come to trip Actions. you know, massive market, uh, growing very fast, adding over 200 customers a month and um, wow. we're over 1600 now. And, uh, you know, it's just a lot of fun to build these companies and take markets.
1: Well, you took Mongo out and all the way from the beginning to end, that's pretty important. So what a big one. This is yes. uh, another big B2B one. You guys are based in Palo Alto, right?
4: We are headquartered in Palo Alto, but we're global. We have seven offices around the world. Very, very
0: cool. So tell us a little bit more about what a- attracted you to join a, a young company uh, and uh, you know, what you've observed covering the sector uh, with, uh, you know, with, uh, with uh, your company.
4: Yes. So uh, certainly for me, when I look at companies, I'm looking at the team. So Ariel and Elon, amazing founders. Uh, I'm looking at the addressable market online business travel, 800 billion. If you look at what's on mobile, 260 billion. That is 10x ride sharing. So I, you know, very attractive to look at that size market. We've got amazing investors. We took our Series C in November from Andreessen Horowitz. So we've taken over 200 million in funding and growing really fast. So, you know, I'm looking at the team, I'm looking at the market, awesome product, and certainly I spent some time talking with our customers. Uh, we've got the likes of SurveyMonkey, Lyft, Procore, WeWork, uh, wow. those kind of customers, just talking to them and their love of what we really deliver from a support and service standpoint for our travelers.
0: That's awesome. You should be uh, sure. travels quite a bit.
4: <laughs>
0: yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm a
1: small customer, I'm about, a, about 150K in spend, so uh, not much. That's okay. we'll take not it. Much. <laughs> well, <laughs> not sorry. much, but, uh, but hey, you know, t- well, tell us more about transactions. like how does it work? You know, what part of the market you're going after? I mean, it is, it is really much bigger than the uh, ride-sharing market, which is really really small part, but you're talking about the overall travel and travel spend, especially on the corporate yes. side, right? So.
4: Yeah, you know, we are very heavy in mid-market and, and going after enterprise as well. Uh, Like I mentioned, some of our customers, WeWork, SurveyMonkey, Lyft, Lime, we've got all the scooters, (laughs) (laughs) I like the joke, um, with Bird. But, you know, we are cross-industry, not just one industry. Of course, we've got a ton of tech, early adopters, and, you know, what I love about it, I just went to London and Amsterdam, and it was unlike anything, first of all, booking was easy, lots of choice online. The average person takes over an hour to book a trip, our average is six minutes. Uh, And it's because we're using that machine learning and AI to serve you the content you want and make it really easy. And then we really take a consumer approach with our app. Uh, And we've got in-app 24-7 chat support. So we do the booking and the support. It's not like you're booking uh, through one place and then you have to call into support. And we make the pricing. You pay for the booking of the trip. And you can call support or chat as often as you want. So here I was getting ready to go to London, the app said right away to book you know to log in that it was ready for me or i should say check in and not waited an hour before it was really on the moment i clicked one button checked me in and then it reminded me on things along the way if i had a flight delay it told me about the flight delay um, and then of course I was on I landed and it already checked me into the hotel and it made it easy for me to go through ride sharing I could do lyft or uber with a click of the button and because it knew where I was going And where I was at it automatically did the to and the from or the from to the two uh, So I love that didn't have to go look up the hotel find the address type it in uh, And it just constantly is there with you. And if there's an issue, I just chat you know who wants to look up the phone number or go wait in line at a airline to figure out if your flight's canceled or you know weather issues when the app can take care of it. So awesome. it's been you know I traveled a ton back and forth to New York uh, for VangaDB and it's just I I wish I would have had this uh, travel management company when I was there.
0: That's
1: amazing! Wow, something definitely to look at, dude. I'm on the road like 280 days a day, huh? Yes, <laughs> a year.
4: Um,
0: <laughs> I, I was. Uh... I was in Amsterdam a couple of weeks ago and I'm heading to London a few weeks from now. Um, so the elements of air, hotel, and car travel to and from, uh, certainly having that orchestrated with preferences. So if I'm always an Uber Black, then knowing that that's my preference, or if I'm you know, uh, always looking for minimum uh, hops when I'm flying, so direct flights are always a preference. And then if you have my spend history, you get a sense that, you know, staying maybe above a three-star hotel. But in addition to that, if it's an application that's looking for your lifestyle and entertainment, knowing the restaurant, like I would have loved advice when I was in Amsterdam where to eat. Yes. Plenty of choices, but I had no idea, you know, which one stood out in terms of, you know, uh, best places to eat. Uh, uh, I I ended up hosting a a CMO event at Van Gogh Museum. But if it wasn't for that already orchestrated appointment, I didn't know Van Gogh Museum was, you know, five minutes away from my hotel. So uh, uh, when it comes to um, uh, travel uh, platforms, do you see, and I apologize, I'm not a client, so I don't know, but do you see at some point a lifestyle management in addition to just airfare, hotel, and rides to and from? in your future.
4: Yeah, we we are certainly looking at all of that, including rail uh, in there. Uh, Mm -hmm. But yeah, our vision is we know you're going to land, you're going to be hungry. We're going to have, you know, something sent to your room even if you prefer that to eat. Uh, And we we know some people want to be near the, uh, downtown livelihood or some people want to be near the office we're looking we, we provide you the hotels that are in the area that you're most likely to want to be and on, on your behaviors and I, I get it on the restaurants where should i go where should i eat uh, and all those preferences so we're, we're collecting what you like in your profile we're serving up loyalty we look at the loyalty stuff that you want uh, to make it as easy as possible
0: that's terrific and do you think at some point it'll be Yelpified based on TripActions clients, where it's peer recommendations that drive the, uh, the, the what you offer up to, to your Yes, company.
4: actually you can see where the, re- for me when I was booking hotels, it showed me where other TripActions people stayed in Amsterdam and London, so I could get a sense. And it's got ratings and reviews in there. We also have an interesting thing around rewards that you may not have seen that really aligns our incentives with finance and travel managers, because most people, they'll get a hotel, let's say the threshold in that area, maybe New York is $500. Most uh, behaviors will, will book you at $499, right? They'll get the best hotel for their limit. Well, with trip actions, we actually will say, let's say the median price, and you go below the median price, you book for $400. And now you've saved the company basically $100, 30% or $30 of dollars will go back to the traveler, and you can use it for Amazon cards, business upgrades, yeah, donate cool. to charity. And we see that we're saving a lot of our businesses, a lot of money, because now we've aligned. People get that money back in their pocket, uh, and they're they're doing it. When I book hotels, I'll look and see what sort of credit would I get. Some people, you know, I just talked to a client uh, in London, and he did his Christmas shopping off of the rewards he saved
0: last right. year. Is, uh, so I love this gamified principle of cost savings where it's shared uh benefits between the traveler and the company that's awesome that, that yeah. is cool that's yes very- well
4: it also helps adoption about half of people on these traditional legacy ones go rogue and they don't even book on the system they don't like the experience they can't find the inventory they're not incented to be on there uh, with us we have over 90 percent adoption so our rates are really high employees and travelers want to use the tool
0: that's terrific. wow
1: you made the booking tool easy to use uh, and it gets people to do that. But then you also have the back end, which is the travel management piece, uh, easy for everybody on that. And so it's it's uh, it's like a, it's a multi-sided design point uh, in terms of the ecosystem. So pretty, pretty cool. So, but hey, let's talk about marketing. Right? Sure. Lots of trends, lots of things happening. Um, lots of trends that actually comes back all to be the same from what we can tell. But what's key to scaling on the tech side? Um, and and what, what works? What do you need to do uh, in general on the B2B side versus uh, what's happening uh, in, in the in traditional uh, B2C side? So,
4: yeah, You know, I definitely, when I think about scale, I think about three things, people, process, technology. Uh, so out of the gate, do you have a product that's got product market fit? And if you don't, what are you doing to get there, working with customers, learning what they want? So get that product market fit and then get the people. So when I joined, my first job was to, you know, let's look at the skill set, how do I need to build the team out further, what technologies do I need to bring in-house, go hire the leaders and the functions that I need and work with them to hire and grow the team so that we can scale. And then our technology, just our platforms, I'm looking at marketing automation technology, I'm looking at our sales stack how do I bring on, you know, I tend to bring on 30 or 40 different technologies that are looking at the customer experience from the start to the end. How do they find out about us? How do they come to our website? How do they, you know, get through our form process, get in front of sales? Have we educated them along the way so they can make that decision as fast as possible? So a lot of optimization goes on around our website, uh, making sure they have that amazing experience. And then once they close and become a customer, what's the experience they're having with us after that, continuing to communicate with them, follow up with them, and make sure our customers are also out there telling our story, because that's what's going to get us in the market. Uh, Most people will look to a reference or their network to find out what technology to use or that they love. So am I giving our customers the platform out in the field on social to tell our story and how they're experiencing us?
0: That's terrific. That's terrific. Uh, We had a a, a CMO on our show a few weeks ago, and he said the real uh, task at hand is to put the science in the art and art into the science, not for the other. You need both to be successful. So can you talk to us about your hiring philosophy as you're bringing talent uh, onto your team? what, what What are you looking for? Are you looking for quants? Are you looking for design thinkers? Are you looking for people that demonstrate... Empathy and have good communication skills. What are some of the traits that you look for when you invite people to join your team?
4: Yeah, so I need it all. I need yes. art, and science. <laughs> I think that's the challenge for CMOS is that you have to hire very uh, different uh, backgrounds and functions. When you think about your systems and website and technology, you need your technologists. When you think about anything that goes out the door, has to look good and be on brand. So you have your designers. Then you've got your um, product marketers that are really thinking about the messaging, the positioning, uh, how do you um, put yourself against your competitors? You've got to think about pricing and there's just a ton around product marketing and you're building a lot of content Then you've got your corporate marketers who are your writers and, and really capturing the customer story. And then you've got your field marketers and events marketers who are out outputting on. So, Each of those roles has a very different background. You can't just go hire one. And the other trick is not only do you have to get all these skill sets, you have to get them all to work together and be integrated. So when I'm hiring, I am looking for a very diverse set of marketing skills and bringing them together. What I think goes across all of them is work ethic, and I also want problem solvers. Because frankly, we're bringing you in because we've got stuff we need to work on and solve. I want people that can come in and find you know, innovative solutions that are gonna you know, really think about the issue at hand. How can we solve it? How can we scale the company? How can we bring in other talent? Uh, and also are just working hard and have a good attitude because you know, we all spend more time at work than we do at home. So let's you know, build a team of people who wanna collaborate and work together.
0: Terrific advice. Ray, it's of hard of to be a CMO these days. It is.
1: You gotta be digital, yeah. you gotta be artistic, you have to be creative, you gotta collaborate, with yeah. all these people together. And it's even harder on the B2B side. So we got all these B2C CMOs trying to do B2B, and honestly, they suck. I I hate to say this. They really suck. Uh they're missing the enterprise quotient. And I thought it'd be great to catch your point. Um what what is it so different about B two B versus B two C marketing that people have to get right? And I'm I'm really talking. I mean, there's there's folks at these really large companies, like publicly traded. There are folks that are already out public, and they're B two C guys that are trying to do B two B marketing, and it's just awful. So,
4: well, I I think you've got to think about the buying process itself. It's not typically one person that makes a decision, puts a credit card on there, and goes right. Mm-hmm. It's an organization. These are very large spends. Typically, they're months you know, six, seven, eight months long. You've got the initial maybe business owner, maybe it's the travel manager, but they've got a budget. They've got to work with the CFO. They've got to work, make sure their travelers are happy. Someone's got to implement it. You know, we're lucky our implementation time is very short. It's a couple weeks or less, depending Mm. on the size of the organization. But there's all these things you need to put into consideration for B2B marketing. That's one. I also think that, people are consuming technology more like consumers. They want instant gratification, they want an app. So I do think there's a lot that B2C marketers can bring around brand and communications and the experience for the customer, but then marrying it to how do you support a sales team? So at the end of the day, B2B, you've got a sales team that's in market, whether it's commercial inside sales team or it's enterprise, also very different ways of going to market. So can you do a lot of the work you need for sales enablement? There's a ton of content making sure they are reaching out to the right buyer. They have the right content. um, They can uh, set up the deal for success and and close it. And you're trying to make them productive, right? It's a very expensive resource. What are you doing to help the sales team get in front of the right person that's ready to buy now with the right message?
0: That's amazing. My final question, advice to new CMOs. What are some of the lessons learned that you could share with uh, someone who's new in the role has the ambition has the education the desire but uh, could gain from your experience
4: i definitely think it has to do with your network Uh, throughout my career i've been very fortunate to be surrounded by cmos and vps of marketing that were willing to meet with me talk with me you know there's always because of the diverse set of roles that we do in marketing there's always something you're not going to know whether you know when i joined MongoDB i'd never run comms so i reached out to a ton of cmos hey how do i look at this What should I do in this area? I've never had a PR firm work for me. What does that look like? And I needed that network. So I definitely say build your network. If you're early in your career, there's always a lunch, right? Take people to lunch, (laughs) set up, drink, (laughs) go to coffee and do it nonstop. Because you're also going to, you know, I love hiring people that reach out to me to network because I think, okay, these people, they get it. They know that we need to be meeting and learning all the time. And I would say the third thing is continual learning. I am always reading, learning from others uh, and just trying to absorb as much as I can.
0: That is terrific. We've, 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 we've
1: got to catch B2B. up with you. That's awesome. We've Great got up. to catch up with you on the B2B CMO network. Uh, I think it's something we got to build out here because I think it's a very important skill and especially as, as uh, B2B companies are continuing to grow uh, in this way. So, hey, any mentors that you want to thank or highlight as we're talking about networks?
4: Sure. One that I love is Brian Cardin. Uh, He's over in Boston. I've learned a lot from him. He was one of the CMOs I reached out to. Uh, Reed Henry, uh, a CMO I worked for at ArcSight. Uh, And uh, definitely, I would say on the understanding companies and where they are, uh, Byron Dieter has Mm -hmm. always been uh, a colleague and friend of mine to help me evaluate and look at the different companies out there.
1: Wow. Great names. Awesome conversation. Congratulations on your new role. Um, Definitely a hot space that people are going to be watching for a while. The next breakout category. We're talking about multi-billion dollar category. Here with Megan Eisenberg, Chief Marketing Officer at Trip Action, a multi, multi CMO uh, startups. And you can follow her on Twitter at M. Eisenberg, M-E-I-S-E-M-B-R-G. Thank you for being on the show this Friday. Thank Thank you for having me.
0: me. Thank you. You're terrific. Wow, what an extraordinary CMO! I mean, everything she said, uh, everything she said was tweetable. Uh, <laughs> which is <was, laughs> great, great insights. Our, our, you know, our our next guest does not like uh, for us to share a, a long bio of his, so I'll, I'll I'll keep it short. It's our privilege to have. Thank you,
3: thank you very much. It was great. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's, it's <laughs> our privilege to have Estemon Kolsky, uh, principal and founder of ThinkJar. Thinkjar is an uh, advisory and research think tank focused on customer strategies. Esteban is a customer strategies, a strategist. He has over 20 years of experience working in marketing sales and customer service operations, on customer relationship management, customer experience management, and customer experience programs. He's also a thinker and researcher. He's constantly researching markets for new trends, producing blogs, eBooks, research documents, and keynote presentations. Esteban's keynote speakers, uh, he's ha- had the opportunity to present in 15 countries, hundreds of conferences, including saw after webinars on podcasts. His recorded videos and audio content has been watched by millions around the globe. Esteban is a consultant. He does not believe in long consultant engagements. He uses research to guide his consulting practice, customizing the optimal advisory service best suited for his clients' needs. Esteban research is not simply a regurgitation of statistics and facts. It's deep analysis of what the data means and how you can apply it to a specific case while leveraging his experience to provide pragmatic pr- 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 pragmatic view of what works and what doesn't. You can follow Esteban and his work at estebankolsky.com.
3: E-S-t-e- ah, finally, no Twitter.
0: <laughs> E-S-T-E-B-A-N-K-O-L-S-E. A-Y.com. Welcome,
3: welcome, Esteban Kolsky. To TV. I, TV. tell you what, remind me to never ask you for the long intro next time, okay? <laughs> <laughs>
0: sure. See, because, because you're not on Twitter, I'm afraid people don't realize you're a world-renowned keynote speaker, consultant, strategist, you bring a decade of Gartner experience with you. So you're an amazing person, and I'm happy to Thank share. You. That, Thank you. I appreciate and he's got the that, most interesting you know, backgrounds. Yeah.
3: So so time is of the essence, Vala. So let's move <laughs> it.
0: <forward>. Ray, you <laughs> get the first question.
1: All right. All right. Here's what's hot. We're we're back to talking about engagement. Um, everyone's getting the definition wrong, and everyone's mixing metaphors around engagement. So. Okay, what really is engagement? I mean, we, you and I have talked about this. We've debated this for years, maybe decades. So what is engagement? Uh,
3: it's what happens before you get married. <laughs> Next. What on that? <laughs> so what is engagement? That's a great question. So engagement is what happens when you do everything else right. That's the bottom line. Uh, you, you cannot achieve engagement, you cannot go for engagement, you cannot measure engagement, you cannot do anything other than just hope that it happens if you do everything right. So your goal as a practitioner of uh, you know enterprise tech is to actually create the best possible scenario so that everything that a company does is fantastic so that everything happens right and then your customers, your employees, and uh, your partners and your stakeholders, they all end up being engaged. Simple. Now, the question is, since you cannot really produce engagement, what is it that you can do to affect and measure engagement, right? I know that was gonna be your yeah. next question. So thanks I for the I was about to ask that. <laughs> <laughs> I just happen to have written something about this, so I know that's your next question.
0: You know? <laughs> no, but I want you also also as you answer that, your philosophy is you don't believe you don't believe long uh, uh, consultancy uh engagements with your clients you typically say you know I can spend two to three days and give advice that they need it could go up to six months depending on the project but when you think about you have a short time to assess a company's ability to effectively engage their stakeholders what do you look for to 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 make the most of that short amount of time you're spending with a client so that when you leave they understand how they can become more relevant in, in today's economy
3: Okay, so let's get into the weeds. <laughs> I swear it's not funny, it just happens that way. I am that fast. Thinking. But <laughs> so so let's, let's get into it. I mean, that's a great question because uh, I often get the question asked, you know, how can we generate engagement? I have six months, I have a year, I have 18 months, I have whatever time. Hey, there you go, right? That's a nice <laughs> one. You know, I don't have that much time, but I need to generate engagement. My CMO, my CEO, my C whatever all told me I need to engage my customers, so how do I do it, right? And, and what I do is, you know, basically, I go back to like the, the, the same questions, the same concept that I just said. You're not gonna get to engagement. Focus on your operations. Do your operations right, and if your customers agree with you, they'll engage. The, the, is, the, the reason we use the word engagement is because, you know, we actually mimic from, from, from people-to-people relationships, right? Mm-hmm. I started back in this engagement concept in 2010, 2011, doing research, and all the research that I've that done led me straight to, like, you know, people-to-people relationships. What is engagement defined from people-to-people? People? How do you actually get to engagement, right? You have a first date. Are you really going to go on a first date and get engaged or get married on the second date? No. Yeah, thank you, Vala. No, no, Vala. <laughs> say, no, yes. No, no. You're not going to get married or engaged in the first date. I learned this, okay? Trust me. So, but you know, what is that How do you do it? You do a first date, you do it right, then you get the right to get a second date. You do two dates right, you get six more dates. You get, do eight dates right, then you get the, the the time to have the talk, right? And the talk is about how do we actually engage? What are we going to do longer term? You know, what what do I know about you? What do I learn about you? I'm sorry, those wits were driving me crazy. <laughs> 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 what do I you know about you? What do I learn about you? And like, you know, what can we do? I mean, now I know a little bit about you. Now you know a little bit about me. So how do we actually do this? How do we create this, uh, finally, this, this continuum, right? How do we put all this stuff together? Mm. Um, you know, I, I learned a little about you. You learned a little bit about me. We, now we have a relationship. So now in the relationship, there are certain constraints that disappear. You no longer have to earn my trust every day. I no longer have to earn your trust every day. There's an inherent trust that we have in there. And are we gonna work? We're gonna work on that. Let's go to green screen now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the flicker is killing me, you know. But you know, now that we have something together, then how we're gonna learn? What are, how we gonna work on that? And that's the same thing with your with your customers. You learn about your customers. You learn what they want, how they wanna be talked to, how they wanna be engaged, what is it that they do that they're asking from you. Then you learn what you can do better. You know, what, what, what you, how you can do it better. And then you start creating a you know, more streamlined approach to this, right? Now you need a better way to measure that. So the, be- the way to measure that is not through metrics, but through indexes, and that's a whole different show. I'm just, you know, setting up my uh, job, uh, um, my 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 my, my uh, ability to come back to this show. We'll <laughs> talk about, you know, how we measure this in indexes, right? But once yeah. you get to that point, this is the critical part that most companies miss. Once you get to that point, you are actually at the point where you find commitment. And commitment is a critical part that all these customer relationships are missing today. We never try to get commitment. We always try to get engagement. It's like going on a second date and saying, by the way, I'm gonna have your kids. That doesn't work either. I tried this by the way. You know, but, but you know, you don't get to have your kids on the second date. You gotta have, build a commitment. You gotta get a, a, a basis of trust, build a commitment, and over time you get to engagement.
1: I like this, and here's why, because everybody actually does it backwards, especially on the HR side, it's driving me nuts. Like, you have a committed employee, but they're not engaged. I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way. It actually comes back uh, in in another direction, and I think this is is one of the missing parts uh, that people are talking about, but there's another piece that's interesting, which is like the brand activation, right? We see people going from brand promise, but to a movement requires something even different, right? And we're seeing that shift right now. So when you think about where we are in terms of engagement, right? You're like, you can't measure it. uh,
3: And then how do we get it right if I can't measure it? How do you get it right if you cannot measure it? That's a great point, and that's why we need a whole show for index. But think about it this way. Um, For you to actually get to engagement, you need to do all these different pieces right, right? So you have two options. You can measure every single piece of every single interaction and monitor every single piece of every single interaction, which is the way most people do today with dashboards that doesn't work, right? Or you can create an index of all these different pieces and have a single number that you go towards and then you use that index to see how things are going. You go up one point, 10 points, 15 points, you go down one, 10, 15, it means different things, right? And once you actually see the number over a long time, the index versus the different points, you start to see like over the long run, How do you actually generate engagement? How do you actually maintain engagement, right? That's Mm -hmm. the critical part. If you focus on a specific part, you're gonna do every single interaction right, but you're not gonna generate trust because it's only one interaction out of the many, right? Exactly. You do everything right. That's how you measure in an index versus a metric.
0: Exactly. There's a researcher from Oxford, her name escapes me now, but she talks about trustworthiness in two dimensions, capability and character. She took the capability pillar and said, it's competence and reliability. And she took the character pillar and said, it's integrity and benevolence. Uh, So your your good intentions and empathy and kindness. So when you say index, are you saying that if you wanna measure trust, you should think about capability and character, figure out what those uh, sub elements are and eventually score your clients across those dimensions? Give us insights in terms of what you mean by index. No, then,
3: let's make it a lot simpler than that, right? Benevolence. I mean, you're talking about a bunch of fussy metrics. How do you measure benevolence? How good am I? Don't ask my ex-wife. How good am I, right? <laughs> Don't ask my kids either, you know. But how do you measure benevolence? How do you measure integrity, right? Those
0: well, are things. So, that so if choose, there's a lot of there's a lot of companies. We had Heather. Uh, please remind me her, her last name. Uh, who was on the Heather show? He- Heather who?
1: Sorry. Oh Heather, which was uh Well, Look,
0: uh, um, Green, Green from Green uh, uh, um, and and she talked about uh, business to business buyers, consumers looking at sustainability metrics in terms of determining which companies they want to partner with. So there is the culture of giving, philanthropy, sustainability, which yeah. you know can maybe get mapped to benevolence, I suppose. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah. You tell you need to stop
3: drinking Kool-Aid
1: when you <laughs> Well, no, no. But I mean, the Heather Clancy's point was was a little Heather bit Clancy, yes, And man. I think you were talking about Rachel Botsman, one of our favorite speakers Rachel Botsman. She's right. uh, She was talking right. about trust. She's got that new book
0: out. So, yeah. um, but, but. I just think you know, when you talk about commitment, if that trust isn't there, there is no commitment, right? There is no commitment. Anyone who we didn't trust. So
3: but, how does your uh, index measure trustworthiness? So, so here, here's the thing. You're talking about a lot of metrics that are very fuzzy metrics, right? How do you measure balance? How do you measure commitment? How do you measure engagement? How do you measure, you know, uh, integrity and and, and commitment and things like that? You cannot measure those things. You cannot, those things evolve over time as you do things. If anybody, whoever has gone to, you know, to to to, uh, to 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 look at you know the outcomes. You know that the outcomes happen because the things get done right in the in the process. And to do things right in the process, you need to focus on every single step of the process. And how can you improve it? Let me give you an example, right? Let's uh, say that you have a problem and you go to your favorite bank. Uh, you're not going to get up in the morning and say, "I want to engage with my bank today," or "I'm going to commit to a conversation with my <laughs> bank." They're like you know, those so and so, you know, it's really screwed up my account. I need to fix this, right? <laughs> So then you're going to pick up the phone, you're going to go to the branch, you're going to go online, you're going to go to the ATM and you're going to try to fix it. And if every single step along the way is like low effort, aligned with your needs, meets your expectations, then that's going to be what you're looking for, right? So me as a company, I need to understand your expectations. You are looking for a fast and easy fix or you're looking for a thorough and repeatable fix. You're looking for something that is like, you know, somebody holding your hand or you're looking for like, I'll leave you alone and you do whatever you want, right? Because those things are going to be for.
0: Well, I mean, some of the hardcore metrics to me is propensity to buy and deal size. If they keep buying more and, and the deals are more, then maybe implicitly you've gained their commitment or trust. But I'll give you a bank example. I was with a bank, a major bank, maybe the number one bank market share in New England for 10, 15 years. I needed some Notary Republic, uh, Notre Republic uh, support. They, I called in advance. They said, You are, come in, we'll give you, we'll give you that. I, I went in there and a VP at that bank brushed me off. And had they just looked up to see, you know, this is not your average client. I actually have a few dollars in my checking and savings account. I dropped that bank in 24 hours after 10 plus years because they totally dismissed me after we delivered the service to me. But here's the deal. Lack of benevolence, that lack of kindness for 10 minutes and they lost a significant client.
3: You dropped that account because you had never made a commitment to the bank, and the bank never made a commitment to you. If the bank would have made a commitment to you, they would have known that that was a temporary situation. They would have said, oh, my God, this guy's been here for 10 years. And look, he's a face He's a face of Salesforce. This guy's more famous than God. God actually comes in as and has to become more famous so religion doesn't go down. You know? <laughs> they, would, they would actually look at all those, all those factors, and they would have made a commitment to you. Like my bank died with me with my $2 in the account every day but they still do what I need them to do because they know that I, I've been there with them for 25 years. The commitment is the key of this. If you yeah. had made a commitment to the bank, you would have said, ah, that's a bad banker. He doesn't know me. No big deal. I called Johnny. Johnny helped me last week and he knows where we are and we have a good trust and a good relationship that we build. Right. Yeah. That's hey, Lala, they're,
1: they're, Lala, they're lacking commitment intelligence. So
0: Honestly, <laughs> all she had to do was just look up my account without knowing where I worked and just see, My commitment to them was a substantial deposit of 10 years into that bank. But, yeah, anyway, my point was –
1: Well, they also got acquired, us, so we'll give them a little – I'm
3: just kidding. Here's the thing. It's going to be lunchtime, by the way. So uh, here's the thing, right? I mean, your commitment was not depositing the money. That was your action. Your commitment is to say, these guys will take care of me when I have a problem, right? And I know they will because they show time and time again that they do it. And that's your commitment. So then that level of trust that they'll take care of you, you'll take care of, you put the money in, they'll take care of you. That's what builds a commitment. Yeah. If that would have happened before, if this was not your first major problem with the bank, then you would have said, ah, no big deal. You know, yeah. it's something that happened once. If this is your first major problem with the bank, you may never made a commitment. You need mm-hmm. to have the ups and the downs to make a commitment. Like you do in a human to human relationship, you need to have, you know, the the the, the, the problems with like your, your girlfriend finding your, uh, your, your iPad with all the chats with your ex-girlfriend—that <laughs> it happened to me—and then confronting you about it, and you being able to explain how that is possible and how that's a problem, and, and how it should be different, right? But that's I got to tell you something:
0: my father and my grandfather didn't have the choices that I have today when it comes to banking, hospitality, travel. So today, any one of us can, in a in a snap change to another provider and those choices that have empowered the consumer is such that if you don't have benevolence be consistently even when you don't know anything about me don't judge a book by the cover you're going to lose you're going to yep. lose because people we're
1: trading loyalty for convenience loyalty for value loyalty for status convenience
3: will always win always uh, you know, uh, loyalty Loyalty is a horrible measure because loyalty is a one way measure. It's like, you know, I'm loyal to you. That doesn't imply exchange loyalty, right? Engagement is the actual replacement for loyalty because it's a two way street. You cannot be engaged to somebody and then they're not engaged to you. That's called stalking. It's a legal figure. You go to jail.
1: Well, we're here with Esteban, who's committed to a double quarter pounder. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, it's a big mug with bait. All right, real quick, what's on your
1: research agenda? What's hot? We know commitment's hot. You're actually onto a big idea here. Uh, I, I can see the formation of that. Uh, what's on the research agenda for the year? So,
3: so, so, so there's two things that I'm actually really focused on this year. One is, is the concept of engagement, engage employee, engage customers, engage stakeholders, right? I don't think that engagement is a, something that only happens with customers. Ray, you said it better you know, earlier. It needs to happen with employees. It needs to happen with customers, with partners, every stakeholder, Everybody needs to be engaged for something to be successful. And I'm looking for like, you know, how do you tie engagement to commitment? How do you tie engagements to outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. And the two is the perennial. Uh, since there's very few people in this world that know what AI means and how to spell it right, and you'd be surprised how many people misspell it, and they don't understand what it is, I'm looking for how you actually, as a company, uh, take on AI, take on data, use it, and, and get, get, get value out of that. And I'm
1: I want to of- go, go now outside doing videos. So, how do you spell
0: AI? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, please, please let me write about both of this, uh, both research um, uh, materials, please.
3: Uh, I th- Anytime, dude, I, I actually have a, I have some some charts and slides and tables that I'm developing that I will send to you, and you're welcome to write about it and. Uh, that's going to cause me heartache forever and ever like it did. They That's like, going to get me another 10,000 Twitter followers, so I love it.
1: <laughs> okay, get the infinity loop in there. Someone stole it. Someone <laughs> still needs credit for so. it. It's
3: all about the hype. Man. That's what I'm about. The hype. I'm putting, putting reality into it. <laughs> debunking hype every step of
1: the way with a quarter pounder in the background. <laughs> Woohoo! All right, we're here with Esteban Kolsky, principal and founder at ThinkJar. He doesn't have a Twitter handle, but if you find E. Kolski, you might find a Twitter handle somewhere. <laughs> so says the camel. Um, anyways, hey, thanks for being on the show. One of our Come advisors on the show. And,
3: uh, we, to, well, we have to talk about indexes next time, you know, me and my <laughs> buddy here. We're going to talk about indexes. <laughs> Ride right
1: the hump, beat the index. All right. Episode 143 was over. Thank you so much, Esteban, And we've got exciting episode 144 coming up. Vala, what is up for next week's show?
0: You know, I'm still trying to absorb three extraordinary <laughs> guests. Uh, certainly, Esteban <laughs> always makes you think. Uh, one of the smartest analysts I know. Uh, next week, episode 144, uh, we start off with another CEO. This is like, it's becoming a theme where if you want to learn from best and brightest CEOs, you come to Disrupt TV sean lane ceo of all of ai and former nsa intelligence officer so someone who absolutely understands ai is going to give us uh, drop some science on us we're going to have suki fuller uh, analytical storyteller investor and competitive strategic intelligence expert she's been on the show before and she's just fun to listen to because she's an extraordinary st- storyteller and super smart and of course, speaking of super smart, uh, we have Steve Wilson, Vice President Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. Maybe we'll talk about cryptocurrency. Maybe we'll talk about you know uh, anything security related, blockchain. Uh, you know, with Steve, uh, you can go as deep and as wide as you want when it comes to cybersecurity and the latest trends in that space. So, Ray, final comments on uh, on our first April show and many to come. Oh, is it first or second? No second
1: it's the first april show we are, we're in no it's been wild hey you've, you've gone through your you've gone it's been a crazy week is all i can say uh but there's a all i can say is like a lot is happening this digital transformation thing we talked about 10 years ago is happening uh it is live it's kind of like looking at cloud 15 years ago uh, it is. These things are all happening very, very quickly, and I think we're going to see a lot more of these innovations and transformations happen. But I think the big innovations that are happening are business models. Everywhere I go, people are reinventing their business model. So I'm looking forward to getting more of that, uh, and we'll see more of that uh, in later shows. But other than that, it's Friday. And, it's
0: amazing. Uh, we should get Saul Kaplan back on and talk about business model innovation. Absolutely, a hot topic. You you have a healthcare digital summit that's coming up. It'll focus on business model innovation and innovation in healthcare. And of course, the book that you're working on certainly will touch about on extensively on uh, winning new business models in this post-digital uh, economy that, that, that we're in. So uh, yeah, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Look forward to seeing you guys next week and thanks for tuning in. Bye everyone.
1: Bye everyone.